it's it's Julian Assange and WikiLeaks that have returned honor to to journalism. Julian is a truth teller, and that's what has upset the those who continue what Goebbels called the big lie. Critical, Randy Critical, live on the fly here on WBAI. Also uh, part of our Assange series uh, resumes today. Uh, and, um, you know, the election's over in, in the U.S. Uh, and presumably the next president will be Joe Biden. But who knows uh, at, at this point what's going to happen. Uh, I've been uh, reading um, some, uh, some uh, not text, but uh, Twitter Twitter tweets from afar from John Pilger. Now, a lot of people are excited in this country uh, about the uh, change in government. Uh, and uh, I understand uh, because I think it's more of a reaction to the uh, domestic uh, situation. Uh, but uh, let's uh, talk about the um, foreign situation here, our foreign policy, and um, someone that uh, Julian Assange, the the um, situation for Julian Assange and uh, what this new administration implies uh, for Assange's future. And of course, John Pilger. John Pilger um, uh, has been sending out tweets. I th think that, uh, John, first of all, John, thank you. The, the greatest journalist uh, in my lifetime, John Pilger. Thank you for joining us uh, again, John. Uh, it's always a pleasure, Randy. I, I, I must say, I'm looking at this one tweet, John. It says, uh, uh, exit bad Trump, uh, hello, good guy, Joe. And you say Biden's record is clear. He is the same warmonger as uh, his predecessors. And then when it comes to Assange, he says that Assange is a uh, high-tech uh, terrorist. So, uh, First of all, your reaction to Biden's win, and then uh, where do you uh, find him uh, in terms of foreign policy and, and his uh, future uh, policy there? You know, Randy, I reported four US presidential campaigns. Um, so, and I, all, I found them, the first couple I found fun. It was like reporting some wonderful circus. I'm now exhausted. It's like a tsunami every four years. Um, those of us outside the United States, we don't even have a mail-in vote. So we can't influence the thing. But so my reaction is, I'm just glad it's over or appears to be over. Um, but there's only one result, and that is we've all got another U.S. president. Yep. That's, that's all we need to say. 
doesn't matter what the name is. Apparently, his name is Joe. <laughs> Good that's guy, a, Joe. That's a friendly name. Good guy, Joe. It was Donald. That was a friendly name. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, seriously, Biden's record uh, is unsurprisingly the record of a man who is the embodiment of the system. That was the difference between him and Trump for me. Trump was a caricature of the system. Biden was the embodiment of the system. Trump, Trump was more interesting in a sense because he was so grotesque. Uh, but Biden is straight out of that democratic uh, heartland, the new heartland. I don't think it, for ordinary people, for ordinary Americans whose lives have been so regressed by the political system that these two represent, uh, I don't know whether it means something domestically, undoubtedly there'll be changes. There could be um, a national campaign to do something about the incredible situation of COVID in the United States, a vaccination program eventually, perhaps all the things that Trump appeared to resist. But in terms of foreign policy, and that's the point, I don't think it makes any difference. In truth, um, fewer wars, if you like, were started during the Trump period. But then at the same time, his, um, his, his impositions on Iran, his, his sanctions against Venezuela, all these were, were quite hideous. But in terms of wars, I mean, Obama is the, he's the champion. Seven wars. Uh, now, he's a nice guy, uh, or is meant to be a nice guy. I don't know. So, but we end up with the US president. That's, that's my reaction. And I'm, uh, you know, you, you, you cross your fingers then. <laughs> I've got to this stage in life and have not been blown to bits by a US president dropping something from the sky on me. That is almost a miracle. I, I think it is, John. The fact that you are still around, uh, <laughs> that, you, that there hasn't been some kind of uh, attempt to uh, eliminate you. Not on me personally. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking, looking at your films, John, from Vietnam uh, to Nicaragua, the Mexicans, all the way up to the coming war on China, uh, uh, the, the, the war on democracy, all of these films that have been so critical of the U.S. and, and NATO foreign policy, uh, Australian domestic policy. I'm surprised that you have survived six decades as, as a journalist, five and a half decades or whatever the uh, amount. Yeah. Of but, you know, it really is surprising uh, that you have, you know, getting back to this election, uh, my dear friend, the late Barry Crimmins, who I went to see way back in uh, uh, October of 2016, uh, just prior to the election, 
not to see Julian Assange. I went to London to see Barry Crimmins, my old friend, and a great political, may he rest in peace, uh, political satirist. And, and, and Julian gave him a nice homage uh, in a tweet um, oh. after he died. And, and Barry said, he says, we have an election coming up uh, in the US in a couple of weeks. And the biggest problem is somebody is going to win. That's what <laughs> got it in one. What? I agree with that 100%. Uh, now, now, look, I, I, I want to get to the coming war on China. I think that is um, uh, something that is, over the past four years, uh, uh, Trump has been really uh, bad. Mm -hmm. He hasn't started any wars, but you say Venezuela, there's been Cuba that he's been kind of uh, bellicose with, uh, Nicaragua, and of course, Iran, and bad with the Palestinians. Um, but also, I mean, it hasn't started any new wars. But um, China, the coming war in China, when I first had you on 2016, that movie came out, uh, the coming war on China, and actually at the end of the year. And so things have not changed. He has been uh, saber rattling with China, and I expect Biden to do the same. What is your assessment? I think they'll all do something like that. I mean, 2016, you're right. It came out just after he was elected, uh, the whole China policy, the new China policy, uh, in fact, was the, uh, was, the, was the brainchild, so-called, of Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State uh, in, in Obama's administration. And in 2011, Obama really blew the whistle, <coughs> blew the whistle on, on the whole China campaign when he flew out to Australia and announced what became known as the pivot to Asia. And the pivot to Asia was the greatest buildup of US warships in the Asia Pacific since World War II. And as a result, we've now got something like 400 US bases uh, encircling China from Australia right through the Pacific up to uh, to uh, uh, Korea, Japan, and across Eurasia. We have constantly uh, US ships probing inside the territorial waters of China, US drones probing provocations day after day. That all happened, started to happen 2011. What tr Trump picked it up and, and has really added just, I would say, a kind of abuse to it. It's, it's constantly abuse. Uh, it just keeps abusing China. Actually, his, his, his trade war against China hasn't had that much of a profound effect, not yet. Uh, what Biden will do, I don't know. Uh, Biden is a Cold War, Cold Warrior. He will... Uh, he will have uh, the standard Democratic Party's um, policy attitude to both China and, and Russia. But China, but China is a special case, Randy, I suppose, because in less than a, a generation, China has risen to, in some respects, not all, in some respects, to be the world's biggest economic power. And it threatens US dominance. Now, if you look back <clears throat> to the, the, the last 10 years, whoever was in power, 
George W. Bush, uh, well, Obama and Trump in the last 10 years, <coughs> uh, both of them have made it clear that that is intolerable. There can only be one bully on the block, one big guy, and that's the US. Uh, the fact that we have what they call a bipolar world or a multipolar world now, it's no longer a bipolar world, it's a multipolar world. That's a reality that the US is resisting. I don't, it did not come up as an issue uh, China or our foreign policy, no. the, it, not at all, other than to rough up Joe Biden as being a socialist. <laughs> and, yes. I mean, to try to make him like he was Chavez uh, or Fidel Castro, which he's the, you know, couldn't be any farther away from, further away from the, yes. you know, those guys' uh, yeah. local life. Um, I wish he were, you know, like yeah. that. But uh, that that uh, word has been uh, pretty much uh, dirtied up, the word socialism. Uh, and um, I, I, I think that the, the entire year, no talk about foreign policy, China, uh, there was talk about the trade and all of that. Do you think that Trump was even aware, has been aware of the um, bellicosity of the US and the amount of, which you point out in the coming war in China, the 400 uh, bases, lily, uh, lily pad bases or whatever that surround China. Do you think he was even aware of that? I, well, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, at one point, early in his presidency, he actually referred to the bases that are all over the world, and there's something up to a thousand US bases, known and unknown bases, all around the world. Uh, he referred to, to, to them and said, why do we need them? I mean, that was a point where he was also uh, questioning what, why do we need to keep persecuting the Palestinians? So Trump was able, of course, to do a, a complete backflip and do a 360 degrees on, on both those issues. He gave the Pentagon the greatest military budget it's ever had, and he gave the Israelis what they wanted for a very long time, and that is moving Jerusalem, moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, and in effect, as far as the U.S. is concerned, not as far as international law is concerned, he legitimized the settlements on on the West Bank. So, Trump's multiple contradictions all began at the beginning, and by the end, he'd become yet another US president. He did what you expect a very right-wing, I suppose, very ultra-lunar right-wing Republican president to do. Um, yeah. He campaign is an, uh, basically as an isolationist, but um, getting back to, the, you're right, about uh, Israel, uh, moving the embassy uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, and I don't know what prompted him to do that. Uh, is he really pro-Israel? Did he uh, think something was going to, there's going, going to be some kind of political quid pro quo there? Uh, but uh, what's been lost here is the conditions of those that live in, in Gaza and the West Bank. And, and you had a posting the other day, uh, Robert Fisk, whose book, 
whose book I have, and it's about this thick, uh, and probably one of the most brilliant scholars on, on the history uh, of, of the turmoil there and, and religion, the religious schisms and everything. I, I, I want to ask you about, uh, about this posting of your film. This is the uh, Palestinian, Palestine is still the issue. Uh, you posted that the other day that it's now, it's right there as a link to it at Twitter and it's on your website. You dedicated it to the life of Robert Fisk. Were you friendly with Robert Fisk? I, I don't think we were particular friends, no, but I admired him and I knew him. I presented him with, a, uh, with the Martha Gellhorn Award for, for journalism. Uh, a prestigious award that I felt as one of the judges, he richly deserved. Robert Fisk was, first of all, an old fashioned reporter, but not a reporter who was beholden to the institution for which he worked or to Western foreign policy, British foreign policy. Um, he was an independent. He worked for the independent newspaper, but he himself was a true maverick, which the best journalists always are. Uh, and he, 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 he used to get very angry about embedded journalism or what he called hotel journalism. Journalism where the pack would arrive uh, at a, a place of upheaval or war or whatever, and <clears throat> he, uh, form a consensus about what the story is going to be. Fisk always went against that grain. Um, that's, that's what a reporter, a real reporter should be doing. And for that reason, he had the most, the most, how shall I put it, um, well, disgraceful obituary in The Guardian, uh, where a sneering, um, uh, uh, sneering at his independence, uh, and in other newspapers. Um, but those who knew and know the Middle East and care for, I suppose, whether people have a right to, to, uh, to human rights as the Palestinians do, who care for the rights of ordinary Syrians who don't regard the whole Syria tragedy as some kind of cult that uh, if you take a differing view on it, then somehow you're you're, you become the object of the cult's anger. Um, I mean, one of Robert Fisk's last stories was to go to Douma in Syria and interview a doctor who had worked in, or had, yes, had worked in the, uh, the place that had been allegedly bombed with uh, a chemical weapon, uh, by the Syrians, uh, there was no chemical weapon. Uh, and the whistleblowers that have come out, official whistleblowers that have emerged in the last few years have shown that to be the case. 
Um, and Fisk reported this doctor uh, as, a, as simply straight, as a good reporter. He received the, he received a, 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 just a, a, a wave of insults uh, because he was stepping outside of the way Syria should be reported. He was reporting the truth as he saw it. Um, so I, admi I admired Bob Fisk. I thought he was a, I thought he was a, a, an unusual, interesting man. We first met a long time ago and we both received awards in the British Press Awards. He got his for reporting from Northern Ireland. <clears throat> and later on, he, he actually completed, he, he, he was living in near Dublin when he died uh, in Ireland. Uh, he took the nationality of, I think, his father, um, or, or he shares Irish and British, shared Irish and British nationality, and, uh, and got his PhD for writing about Irish neutrality during the Second World War. He was a thoroughly interesting man and a fine reporter. Really, really a great, a really a great writer and a great reporter. As you uh, said, he was not an embedded uh, reporter, not a hotel reporter, war correspondent. And the same with, with you, John. I mean, you know, you, you've been to Vietnam, you've been to Cambodia, you've been to all of these countries around Nicaragua uh, during the conflict. In 84, you were there. And, and so you were certainly not embedded. Uh, is, is there something about what, what drives you, John? to do that, to go to these places, uh, because you really are putting your safety and your life in danger. What is it about it? Did you get some, is there a rush that comes with it? <laughs> oh, look, <clears throat> Randy, I've always felt privileged to be a journalist. You know, I, I started very young as a journalist and I couldn't believe my luck. Here I was being given a sort of license to be allowed into people's lives, to write about them, to find out about things, to inquire about things, to satisfy my own curiosity, uh, to go to countries and see cultures that I hadn't imagined even existed. Uh, so I take a rather more positive view. And yes, there have been dangers all the way through it, but, um, I think what has driven me on is that uh, I'm, I've always had a passion for being a journalist in all its forms, making documentary films. I was trained and worked for many years as a newspaper journalist. Uh, and uh, yes, there's, as you put it, there's a rush in a lot of that. Um, but it is the rush, the rush is at its best when you know you've got something that is going to make sense of a situation that people are rather confused about or about which they've been denied information. That's where the real rush is. In other words, you've got the real story or you've got as close to the real story that it's possible to get. Uh, 
it, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of uh, guts to do that, John. Uh, and uh, I, I admire all of your work. Uh, I, 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 I got to tell you, Nicaragua is one of my favorite of your films. And by the way, you can see all of uh, John's films now on uh, johnpilger.com, all of his films, all 61. And plus there are some speeches that have been added uh, there. If you go to the videos, six or seven or eight speeches and interviews with Martha Gellhorn and others that you did uh, on this uh, program back, I don't know if it's the 70s or 80s, early 80s. So there's a lot of stuff there. Uh, John Pilger, this is um, Randy Credico, Randy Credico, live on the fly uh, on uh, WBAI 99.5 FM here in New York City. Uh, we are talking uh, with the great uh, John Pilger. Uh, we are going to uh, take a break and continue this conversation. Talk about uh, Julian Assange on the other side and uh, what's in store for him under a Biden administration. We'll be uh, right back. Now when I was a young man I carried me pack And I lived the free life on the roller From the Murray's Green Basin To the dusty outback Oh, I waltzed my Matilda all over Then in 1915 My country said, son It's time Stop rambling, there's work to be done. So they gave me a tin hat and they gave me a gun and they marched me away to the war. And the band played waltzing Matilda as the ship pulled away from the quay. And amidst all the cheers, the flag waving and tears, we sailed off for Gallipoli. Uh, we are back uh, with um, legendary uh, filmmaker, journalist, award-winning um, filmmaker, many, many, many awards, uh, and journalist and author, John Pilger, who joins us from uh, his lovely uh, digs in London, where I had the pleasure of having probably the best coffee I've ever had in my life, John. <laughs> that'll come as news to a lot of people. I, I know, but listen, I really needed it because I had just uh, come back uh, from Scotland where I was visiting Craig Murray and I was there and I'd visited uh, Julian Assange the night before for the very first time I went and we spoke about it. Uh, out there uh, at your place. We had the most beautiful, you call it your pride and joy, that garden. The garden is yeah. absolutely gorgeous. We're going to put some photos of that garden if you don't mind <laughs> right now. All right? Great. It's a great place. And um, that was, I first personally met you there uh, and I had seen Julian Assange and I was so hopeful back then, John, uh, when I saw Julian Assange that things were going to get better. This is... Um, back in um, September of 2017. And I, I really was hopeful and things have just spun out of control. Um, and I think back then you were a little more optimistic. Uh, what on earth has happened? Well, uh, what has happened is that, uh, uh, yes, we must always be optimistic, 
but at the same time, we must always recognize the ruthlessness of great power when uh, it senses a threat and is able to capture a threat. Now, Julian is seen as a threat because he exposed the war crimes of the United States. He's exposed much else. Uh, and WikiLeaks uh, is, is, is the threat of a good example. It's the threat of to, it's saying to journalists, look, there's, there's you, your comfortable lives are all very well, but this is, this, this kind of revelation is what journalism, hard-edged journalism is really about. That you can make, if you want to really make a difference, then, and speak on behalf of your readers, viewers, and, listener, and listeners, <coughs> then uh, you give, you, you, you support whistleblowers, and you tell people when your governments are lying, you tell people what they say in private, which is often very different from what they say in, uh, in public. You tell people how wars begin. Uh, this is journalism at its best. WikiLeaks did that and it was a threat. I remember one of the early, early documents, actually Julie and I discussed it in our first interview, that um, WikiLeaks um, leaked and that was a British Ministry of Defense document, how to stop leaks, which they leaked. Um, and it identified the three great uh, threats to uh, uh, civilization as we know it. Uh, uh, Russian spies, terrorists, and the, 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 the really biggest threat was investigative journalists. There it was investigative journalists. And of course, that is, that is, uh, uh, that, that sums up why WikiLeaks was such a threat and why Julian is in the great difficulty he is in at the moment. Uh, they, see, they see him as somebody who could, um, possibly infect other journalists with this, this extraordinary um, will to want to call great power to account. That uh, is right on. Uh, and that was three years ago. It hasn't uh, gotten any better. Uh, I thought perhaps uh, under Trump, it might get better, uh, but it, it hasn't, in fact, uh, I'm surprised that he, his administration is leading the prosecution because I think it was dropped uh, under uh, Obama. They decided, even though they had prosecuted and put away a lot of whistleblowers, people that we know, people have been on this show, uh, and, and they had started this investigation, uh, but they had decided that uh, he had not violated or had not committed any crimes. But yet they started the investigation, they kept it going, and then Trump picked up the ball. Uh, and it was very ominous when Pompeo came out and uh, called him a high tech. I forgot the term already. Uh, we'll play it right here. Pompeo. WikiLeaks walks like a hostile intelligence service and talks 
like a hostile intelligence service. It has encouraged its followers to find jobs at the CIA in order to obtain intelligence. It's time to call out WikiLeaks for what it really is, a non-state hostile intelligence service often abetted by state actors like Russia. All right. So you remember that speech by Pompeo yeah. slamming yeah. WikiLeaks, right? Yeah. Yes. He, uh, he called him uh, uh, non-state uh, 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 espionage agency or something. I've forgotten. Something yeah. like that. It right. was such a, such a confusion of words. But um, who knows when, why things went on in the, in the Trump administration. Uh, Trump seemed to be at war with his own administration for most of the time he was there. I think it was certainly Pompeo who, uh, who felt very deeply about Julian. Pompeo is a, is a genuine extremist, uh, a fanatic, uh, who was, uh, of course, director of the CIA before he became uh, Secretary of State. And I suppose with the demise of the Trump administration, one good thing I can think of is, uh, is the, uh, the political demise of Mike Pompeo. Um, but I think- And what William I, Barr and, and the Attorney General William. Yes, there are quite a few actually. We'd be here all day. I know. <laughs> but yes. there's a few coming in to replace them, but never mind. Um, the, the, I mean, I think undoubtedly WikiLeaks, perhaps it's almost perhaps it's greatest leak was the Vault 7 uh, leak. And that was of uh, the CIA leaks, how the CIA spies on Americans, on foreigners, how it does it in all sorts of ways through your phone, even through your television set. Uh, WikiLeaks had all of that. Uh, and uh, uh, it was all true, it was all authentic, but I think that deeply upset uh, the, uh, the, um, um, uh, the, the powers at, uh, at Langley who were then uh, represented by Mr. Pompeo. Uh, I remember that very well when that came out. And that was uh, the first couple of months uh, of 2017. It was a very gutsy, I don't know if Julian got a rush out of that, but he certainly, you know, he, I think he really felt compelled to tell the truth and get these things out there. He could have sat on that, but uh, there's some kind of moral, uh, yeah. agency fiber that he has that it cannot be compromised. <laughs> it's very interesting that you mentioned that because he, that is the morality of WikiLeaks. He believes that accountability and transparency uh, are a moral issue. He's basically a Democrat, small d Democrat. He believes that that great power, power corrupts unless it is called to account. Uh, and that's journalism's job. It's the job of whistleblowers. And of course it is, has been um, very powerfully expressed by WikiLeaks. Um, 
I remember once discussing with him whether uh, I suggested to him that he might perhaps hold a certain leak, not the one we're talking about, another one, if he wanted to get, he, he was then, I think, after his, his uh, um, uh, political asylum, his refugee card that would be issued by the United Nations High Commissioner on Refugees. He needed this documentation. Uh, he didn't have it. He was officially a, uh, a political uh, uh, refugee in the Ecuadorian embassy, but he didn't have the piece of paper. And I said, well, perhaps if you don't leak anything or WikiLeaks doesn't do something for just a short while, you'll get it. You know, it was said in a kind of jocular way. No, 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 under no circumstances. Yeah. He believed everything out, put it out, put yeah. it out, put it out, not irresponsibly. And that, that was a, an issue that I felt was almost resolved at this extradition hearing in London here about redaction. It was so many came forward, including, of course, Daniel Ellsberg, to say how meticulous and hardworking Julian Assange was in redacting the names of those informants in documents that might be uh, that might that might be harmed by 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 the revelation, but otherwise he it, it it was it's transparency it's accountability. We we're having walls of secrecy built around us today. Uh, there is there are bills going through the House of Parliament here that are giving special powers to uh, the intelligence organizations, to authority in general, that have been unheard of outside of the Second World War. Uh, the same is true in other Western countries, certainly true in Australia. Uh, where they have what they call foreign interference laws, which have been brought in, in under the most draconian conditions. So journalism throughout is feeling what I would call the Assange effect. They think they've got Assange. They know the success of WikiLeaks. And I have to say the popularity of WikiLeaks. There's no doubt most people... Uh, very much approve of the idea that their right to know is honored. Um, but that uh, throughout the world, throughout the, the Western world, the so-called liberal democratic world, there is this move to build secret societies of a kind we haven't seen before. The, 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 um all of these uh, Western countries, these, the Five Eyes and, and, and NATO, they're all, I guess, fearful of Julian Assange and what he represents and whom he might inspire. I think that uh, maybe it has been to a lot of journalists out there, it's been very chilling uh, what he has gone through, not just being in the embassy all of those years, that was bad enough, but this farcical trial uh, that I, 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 I you, you did attend uh, the trial uh, back in September, John. Yes. Uh, and 
what, how, how crazy was it to watch that and see Julian still in one of those cages and uh, knowing what a great individual he is. He's a, a close friend of yours. I consider him a friend. You're really close to him. How did that affect you to see that? to see a friend of yours who's done nothing but great deeds in his life being treated like that. Well, it's very upsetting. I was sitting in the public gallery next to John Shipton, Julian's father. And uh, in the morning we would watch Julian led into what is a kind of narrow glass-faced corridor at the back of the court. Uh, and He'd have a mask on, of course. He'd have one guard with him. Uh, and then he would look up, blinking through the, the reflection of the glass to try and make out who was in the public gallery. Uh, and the moment he recognized us, uh, it was a very, uh, it, was a, it was a good time, good moment. Uh, he'd see his father, he'd see me, He'd see Craig Murray and other people who uh, were there to support him. But you're, you're right, to see a man who has committed no crime, who's in fact performed a remarkable public service to many people all over the world, uh, to see him treated as, as if he's a serial killer or a, or a terrorist, uh, to see him being, when the few, very few times, I don't know how he restrained himself, he stood and spoke out in court, to see him being told to sit down or he'd be removed uh, by this extremely strange judge uh, was, was very salutary and and uh, something I took, took no pleasure in at all, I have to say. Yeah, you know, it was, good, I was good to see him. It was good to see him and he looked better, I have to say. He looked, he's put on a bit of weight. Uh, he, uh, he looked better and, and uh, Stella Morris, his partner said, told me that of course he was, he was actually energized by by the court proceedings, <clears throat> because prior to that, since April last year, he'd been most of the time in solitary confine confinement in a prison cell. So here he was, he could hear people giving evidence on his behalf, uh, speaking the truth. Uh, he could also hear extraordinary prosecuting barrister who represented the US government uh, distorting so much of, of, of what he'd done and what WikiLeaks had done. But still, he was at least at the center of things. I don't, it's hard, it seems, it seems almost crazy to put a, a positive spin on that. But knowing, knowing how clever is Julian is and how he needs that stimulus uh, here he was getting it. The worst day in court, Randy, I have to say, was when a couple of leading um, uh, 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 
um, psychiatrists. In fact, one of them, one of the one of the most distinguished in the world, um, uh, uh, Professor Kopelman, I believe it was, and another one, uh, Dr. Humphreys. Dr. Humphreys, her she exa had examined Julian, and her evidence suggested that the impact of what of his imprisonment in various forms over the last decade had actually had a cognitive effect. She said, in effect, that it had reduced his intellectual capability from what she described as very superior down to a point where he was struggling. And I felt when I heard that, I felt, I almost felt a bit of despair, but I felt such anger that that kind of almost lobotomizing could be done to such a bright man by the circumstances imposed on him. So um, what came over was that I know and you know, he's been through hell. I, I, I definitely uh, could not uh, withstand uh, what he has gone through uh, the last couple of years. It's not just being charged. It's not just going through this farcical uh, pr proceeding, but being in that, that prison and not being able uh, to do what you do. You know, and this is like a key moment in his life. His most fruitful possibilities would be right now. Uh, and he's uh, unable to, I don't know if he can write letters, if he can write books, write articles. He can't uh, engage in social media. This was all being denied him. They're totally mummifying this man uh, in terms of communications. John. He can, he can communicate with, with Stella and he can communicate with his father, but they are truncated phone calls that I think, I know I've had them myself, they cut out after eight minutes. Uh, but I think he is, I think he's allowed to see Stella and the children. Uh, I don't think John, his father, has seen him. Um, and this is all <laughs> to protect so-called to protect him and them from the ravages of, of COVID. Well, the, the, there's been at least a couple of COVID deaths in that prison, uh, probably more. Uh, certainly there've been quite a few infections. Um, he told Stella at their first meeting that this was the first time he was made to wear a mask when he met her that the, this was the first time he'd been given a mask. Um, so there's been a punitive element to almost every mundane aspect of his life since he's been in there. Well, every uh, motion has been that I've seen uh, before this judge has been denied something that would go in his favor. Uh, it, it just looked like this thing has been pre-written and you're just walking us through the script that has been pre-written elsewhere. And that's why she was chosen to be uh, the overseer uh, of this farce. Well, yes, we don't, we don't know that to be true, but she is uh, um, 
we do we do know I do know watching it that so much due process uh, has been ignored. Uh, for example, um, uh, witness witnesses for the uh, for Julian for the defence <coughs> were, as they say, guillotine. They could only speak for half an hour, whereas cross examination of them by the barristers acting for the US government went on up to four hours. Now, cross-examination often is greater than uh, initial testimony, but this kind of disproportionate um, display in the court was really shocking. What, 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 why hasn't uh, someone from the government kind of intervened here and try at least make oh. this look like uh, an honest drama. I mean, seriously, why doesn't somebody from the John Johnson, I heard him this morning talk about a free press, Boris oh. Johnson, you know? Well, why doesn't somebody come in there uh, and try to uh, right this uh, wrong? Well, Randy, I don't, I, don't know the, I don't see why they should. They've got, they've got, a, uh, they've got a draconian trial which is going along, which has been boycotted by most of their friends in the media. So most people don't know about it. If it wasn't for diarists like uh, Craig Murray or others like Joe Laurier on Consortium News and one or two other people, then there's no way of finding out what was said in the court. Um, the BBC, reporter came one day and said, no, he wouldn't be coming back the next day because he felt the evidence was repetitive. I mean, that that's almost satirical what he said. Every day was the most extraordinary, often uh, breathtaking drama of what has been, what has been done to this man and uh, the revelations that came from those defending him. Um, it, it was about the press. It was about freedom of speech. It was about the right to know, our right to challenge authority, our right to dissent. All these issues uh, were, 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 were brought up and discussed in relation to this case. Um, so it, you know, those of us, I suppose, privileged enough to be there, uh, to be at least in support of Julian and to hear these arguments, know how, what an important forum actually it was most of the time. Not, almost none of that was reported in the mainstream, almost none of it. Astonishing, isn't it? Yes, well, I can tell you less than none was reported in this country, uh, you know, particularly during this um, uh, you know, campaign for presidency uh, in the U.S., but absolutely nothing, not on MSNBC, uh, NBC, ABC, nothing in the Times. Uh, so, and that's one of the problems here, John, is that the public doesn't give a damn here about Julian Assange or it's, it, he's not on their radar. And if he is on their radar, they pretty much don't like him. And that's, that's the conundrum here. 
you know, is, is trying to get, how do you do it? Get the public here to understand everything that you know about Julian Assange and what this is all about. Well, that's a pretty, <laughs> that's a pretty big question, Randy. Uh, that's really saying we need a free press. You know, I don't altogether agree with the campaign for Julian, the campaign thrust that says um, uh, free Julian Assange and, and protect a free press. What free press? Right. What free press? Uh, it doesn't exist. And the spaces that used to be in the mainstream media for people like myself and others, for Robert Fisk, for Seymour Hirsch and others, no longer exist. They've gone. So what free press? The issue is about free journalism, but the free journalism actually was represented by WikiLeaks and by programs like yours and others that uh, are not considered, quote, mainstream, a terrible misnomer, but are not considered mainstream by themselves. And certainly uh, as individuals, we don't have the power of dissemination that the BBC has, and the networks in the US has, that the New York Times has. Uh, so the issue here is uh, we need a free press. That's the issue. We need a free media. Uh, it, 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 it's, we, it's top of the list. Uh, and the man who was uh, running uh, an, a shining example of free media, WikiLeaks, uh, is, is fighting for his life. That's the issue here. And, and there is not enough media out there, if any. Uh, it reminds me of the, the story uh, of Mozart and Salieri. There's a lot of Salieri's out there that are envious of uh, yeah. Julian Assange. And he is the Mozart. And the, the rest of them are, you know, uh, church, uh, you know, recorder players, you know, <laughs> that uh, only uh, drum out a few notes. Uh, and so I think they are envious, they are jealous, and uh, they'd like to see him destroyed. Uh, it might get on their conscience that, that there's somebody out there doing what they were supposed to do. They went to a journalism school. Uh, they, are, are, they are supposed to adopt these ethics uh, when, when uh, uh, you know, practicing journalism. And they have. You have. Robert Fisk has. Danny Schechter uh, uh, did. Uh, and uh, Seymour Hersh, of course. There are very few out there that, uh, particularly ones who have been around, like you have, that uh, that continue to practice and are like accepted by what you call the mainstream media, which I don't, I don't even know what that term means, mainstream media. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, yes, I think I think what you're saying, and I agree with you, is that the honourable exceptions are those that serve the public. Uh, honorable exceptions to a system that serves power, that are agents of power, not agents of people. Uh, and that top-down uh, 
aspect of all power, but especially of news power, is very, very potent these days. It's those who practice the power bottom up. Martha Gellhorn used to say, a good reporter doesn't look at the world through the telescope looking down from above, but from the ground looking up. She called it the view from the ground. And that's what, that's what real, real reporters know that almost instinctively. Many of them start off thinking that, but then have it beaten out of them by a, a career that offers them rewards and all sorts of uh, 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 celebrity and fame and, and so on. Uh, but that's, that's what real journalism is. I saw a lot of that, John, when I went to the, I was invited uh, to the White House Correspondents uh, Dinner uh, okay. a few years back. I went there all because of this bogus uh, fame from that Russiagate deal. They invited me, yeah. so I went. I got kicked out, of course, because uh, right in the middle of it, I started screaming at the stage, why are you honoring CNN and not Julian Assange? And this is way back after he had been arrested. I screamed up there, why not Julian Assange? And um, they threw me out of there, they dragged me out of there. And there were, you know, 5,000 people there, a lot of reporters. Uh, none of them came to my aid. No one talked about it uh, in the press. Max Blumenthal did uh, from Gray Zone News. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was at, literally, and I was special guest. I was sitting at the CNN table and they dragged me out of there because I just got up. I was so annoyed. Uh, but I, I consider them as a political satirist. There are political satirists that are serious. And then there are court jesters. I consider a lot of these uh, journalists to be like court jesters and they are there to serve, uh, the King, uh, and his court. Um, I, I, I did want to ask you about Joe Biden. And uh, I think we started out, uh, where are we going to go with Joe Biden and a new, um, a, a new Justice Department? Uh, what uh, does that auger for uh, Julian Assange? Uh, the answer is I don't know, Randy, but uh, it can't be worse, I suppose. Is that a, that's almost an optimistic answer. It can't be worse than the present situation when you have uh, this Justice Department, uh, which seems absolutely corrupt in their, the way they've dealt with so many things, but notably the Assange case. Um, so it, uh, it could be worse. Uh, it couldn't be worse, or perhaps it could be worse. I don't know. I don't know enough about it. I do know, I look at Biden's record over the years and um, uh, uh, all I remember, what, 10 years ago, um, <clears throat> uh, he called Julian a high-tech terrorist. You know, a snappy, snappy phrase from Mr. Biden, but what the hell does it mean and what nonsense it is, and what, what a profanity on a man who is, um, who, who is, is a real journalist. And, uh, and that, I think, did tell me something about Mr. Biden, but I need to find out more 
about him. I don't think I will at the moment. I don't want to actually hear his name or Mr. Trump's name for now, some period of time, possibly the rest of my life, but. I feel the same way, all right? <laughs> I feel exactly the same way. Uh, what, uh, John, um, can uh, we do? Not me, but uh, the what, what's the strategy now uh, uh, in, in terms of trying to get uh, good uh, PR for Julian Assange and uh, try to move this forward in a positive way. Uh, I think there's been a lot of mistakes uh, down the pike here. Uh, what can we do, uh, not just here, internationally? I mean, where, where, where is the thrust gonna come from that's going to extricate him from uh, this dire situation? Well, I think the law, um, uh, and I believe that his lawyers, I, whom I know, uh, are working very hard on they've already now put in their final uh, summing up to the judge who will give her decision on January the 4th. Uh, whichever way it goes, it'll go to appeal. Uh, that means it'll go in the court of appeal here. And I've always felt that that's where it has its greatest chance of justice. I think in some of the high courts in this country, there are real judges who care about the law, whatever their politics. I think they do care about the law. And there are so many transgressions of the law, so much lawlessness in this Department of Justice case against uh, against Julian, that it should have been thrown out of any self-respecting court on the first day. Now, whether that will happen in an appeal court, I don't know, but I think Justice and Julian have a far greater chance of success in, in, in the Court of Appeal. Unfortunately, that won't be until well into next year. In the meantime, he was sitting in this terrible maximum security prison uh, and uh, his health is poor. Uh, his, well, I, we don't need to go over that again, but that, that's, so that doesn't quite answer your question. What can we do? I think that's where it's going regardless of what we do. I think what we can do is what you're doing, and that is keeping people informed about this case. Um, that's why your Countdown to Freedom series is so important. Keeping people informed about this absolutely critical case in the face of silence, effective silence, and, and a certain hostility from within the so-called media. I'm not sure I agree with you that that the people are themselves hostile to Julian. I, I don't know about the United States, perhaps they are in the United States, but who knows? I've no way, I'm not Gallup and I can't go out and poll them. I just don't know. I do know from my own experience in this country, Britain, and in Julian's homeland, Australia, 
that he has a huge amount of support. People do understand. They do understand that he has been, as they say here, fitted up, well and truly fitted up. And uh, people in their own lives are often at various levels fitted up, they understand. I think there is that connection. Well, I, I must say, I do subscribe uh, to uh, the uh, concept of getting the asses of the masses on the streets uh, if you want to see some political change. And, and, I, and I see it happening. I see it in Australia. I see it in Sydney. I, I see it around the world. I see it in Rome. I definitely see it in London. Uh, people are out there. But I, I do believe that that will that's a critical element of this is to get more people out there and continue the getting the information out there the mobilization, because he is someone that is very special. And it not just affects him and his family, but the whole future of journalism. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, that. John Pilger, you've been out there for a long time. Uh, uh, you know, Dreyfus had Zola, Julian Assange has you, John Pilger. And, uh, you know, you've been there and I mean, just unsparing. You're just constantly out there uh, in support of Julian Assange. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, this cause will be successful uh, in the end. And this is our, this is, by the way, since you were on the very first Assange Countdown to Freedom uh, back season one in 2017, April 4th with Julian Assange. You yeah. two, that's when it started. This is today, because I haven't done one in two months. Uh, this is season five, episode one with uh, John Pilger. And uh, you're the right person for this, uh, John. And I really thank you uh, for uh, uh, sparing us uh, a lot of your time. You've always been good uh, for uh, WBAI and uh, for Assange Countdown to Freedom on our website. Thank, so, thank you, Randy, for your, 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 your achievements. I, I mean, you, you've, as I say, Countdown to Freedom, there's nothing like it. Uh, it has kept the whole issue of Julian and everything of justice and, and free journalism alive. And that, that's achievement you should be proud of. Thank you very much. Well, you've rekindled uh, the, the, the spirit here because I was dispirited. Uh, but thank you. You got, you got me off my ass again. So uh, here we go. And uh, John Pilger, once again, uh, we're, hey, I, can you tell us? Uh, this is from uh, the coming war on China for people who don't know why you chose Vera Lynn at the end of this. And we'll go out with that. Tell us why Vera Lynn and we'll meet again. We'll meet again is at the end of uh, uh, Dr. Strangelove. It's Kubrick's inspired choice to run over um, uh, 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 the, the atomic bombs exploding at the end. It is so bitterly ironic and savage that really I'm paying homage to Stanley Kubrick on that brilliant film. So it's about, it's saying, of course, if this happens, we won't meet again. So we mustn't allow it to happen. Right. All right. Well, uh, it's, it, I kind of like the, I like uh, the, the music itself, but I know it's from World War II uh, and it's in 
the Kubrick film, which I'm going to have to see again. All right. Well, uh, John Pilger, once again, uh, that's coming war on China, by the way, folks, uh, very relevant. And you're uh, the dirty war on the NHS that is out there on your website now. Yes, that's on the website. Okay, johnpilger.com, folks, get yourself an education. Uh, this pandemic's going to get worse. There'll be a lot of a uh, lot more days of lockdown. Uh, so watch johnpilger.com and uh, show your kids, educate your kids. Uh, thanks a lot, John. Uh, we'll be right, uh, or we won't be right back. We're go Yes, we will be right back after a little Vera Lynn here. Thank you, Randy. We meet again don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Of course, Vera Lynn uh, from um, the uh, masterpiece by Stanley Kubrick, one of his many masterpieces, uh, Dr. Strangelove. Uh, the, uh, the indie music credits all of that right there, as in uh, John uh, Pilger's, one of his uh, many masterpieces, The Coming War on China, uh, the credits uh, Vera Lynn. Uh, I think he explain that well, why it's there. Uh, I wasn't sure, now I know. Um, and, you know, Eric Bogle uh, was the, uh, the, the individual uh, earlier, early on that uh, uh, sang uh, and the band played Waltzing Matilda. He actually uh, wrote uh, and the band played Waltzing Matilda. We've played many versions of that over the last uh, five years. I think that might be the first time by Eric Bogle, who now lives in Australia. He's from, uh, he's from Great Britain. Uh, what can I tell you about John Pilcher? I mean, he's a one of a kind. He really is uh, the most extraordinary journalist uh, and filmmaker around uh, for a long time. There's nobody like him. Uh, you cannot only see that film and the coming war or the coming war on China but uh, on his website, johnpilger.com, but all of his films, going back to Vietnam, a uh, couple of films on Cambodia, uh, Utopia, um, the, the War on Democracy, uh, and his most recent one uh, is uh, The Dirty War on the NHS. They're all there. You can see all of those films by going to johnpilger.com and read all of his articles. Um, he's the most prolific and the most... Um, profound um, uh, journalists uh, 
war correspondent, filmmaker around, I mean, by far. And we've been very blessed to have him uh, many times over the past uh, four years. Uh, a real pleasure and honor to know him. I know I sound redundant, but I, I just can't give him enough praise. Um, he rekindled my spirit here. I was ready to give up on the Assange series. I just like was out of gas with it uh, for the last couple of months and, you know, talking to John, here we go again. Uh, so um, I want to thank him once again. And I want to uh, thank Kelly Lane, who is the, um, the editor and the engineer for the Assange uh, series here. Uh, and she does a fabulous job. And uh, she has to deal with me, a cranky uh, person like me. Um, and let's see who else. I want to thank Sarah and Emily Kunzer and Margaret Radrick Kunzer who helped me uh, on the website. And, and look, uh, we barely uh, are able to pay the bills. I don't make a salary here, but you know, I'd like to do this throughout the, um, what goes on the next uh, six months or next year, whatever it takes. But we definitely need your support, not looking for big money, just to pay the bills. Um, and you can do that by going to uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom. Let's spell the whole uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom out. And uh, you go to donate and support or whatever it says there. I'm not in charge of that. But uh, you can take a look at my tax records. You'll see I don't make anything on this thing. Uh, and I think that's about it. Um, uh, we'll continue. We'll try to continue uh, this uh, this um, series. It really is vital that um, we all get together and uh, do what we can um, to help out Julian, extricate him uh, from this, um, you know, unrelenting uh, persecution uh, by the powers that be. All right, uh, we're gonna go out here. Uh, John mentioned Martha Gellhorn, and uh, this, uh, we'll, we'll kind of like pay tribute to her right now by playing uh, music from the Spanish Civil War, about the Spanish Civil War. And uh, this is called The Partisan, and it's by Leonard Cohen. We've played it before, uh, but uh, we tip our hat here to Martha Gellhorn. All right, see you soon, thank you. Across the border, I was cautioned to surrender. This I could not do. I took my gun and vanished. I have changed my name so often, I've lost my wife and children, but I have many friends. And some of them are with me An old woman gave us shelter Kept us hidden in the garret Then the soldiers came She died without a whisper There were three of us this morning I'm the only one this evening, but I must go on. The frontiers are my prison.
the wind, the wind is blowing. Through the graves, the wind is blowing. Freedom soon will come. Then we'll come from the shadow. Shadow. 